The most important people to have at that table are the nonprofit organizations or the indigenous groups or the municipalities who will take on that asset for a long-term period, who are responsible to their populations, to their communities, uh, who will actually live there. From the heart of Hub City, downtown Moncton, New Brunswick, this is Well and Fair. I'm your host, Anna Larade, and I want to see change in my lifetime. So let's talk. Today we're here with Nick Gafusha from Elliston Community Builders. Elliston Community Builders helps clients deliver affordable and supportive housing by providing development management services and leveraging Elliston's turnkey project capabilities and extensive experience in public asset development and operational expertise to manifest much-needed affordable housing developments. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining us today. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. So just to dive right in, I know you gave me a bit of background on how um, community builders approach it, Elliston Community Builders approaches uh, building affordable housing, where we're moving away from that real estate uh, model and more into an, uh, how we approach infrastructure. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Absolutely. Um, so Elliston Community Builders is a group within Elliston Capital. Um, Elliston Capital is the development and equity investment arm for Elliston. And we came about uh, in, a, in the early 2000s uh, when the province of Ontario decided to use the public-private partnership model to start developing social infrastructure. Uh, so our first project was Brampton Civic Hospital in 2004. And, and really the reason for our group is that uh, the private sector started making direct investments um, into social infrastructure like hospitals and things like that. And that required a development group within a, a construction company. Uh, and that model, that P3 model, proliferated through the 2010, 2020. Uh, and we had the big hospital boom and we became the biggest infrastructure developer uh, in Canada. Uh, so until 2019, we were largely an infrastructure group. Uh, and uh, 2019 came along. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer, uh, not practicing. I came back to Elliston. I had worked with Elliston previously. And we decided that we really wanted to focus our attention on affordable housing because I think it goes without saying that we are in a tremendous uh, challenge um, environment for developing affordable housing for Canadians. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we wanted to do our part as a private sector leader to, to look at it, developing affordable housing. And we're in a really unique position with an infrastructure perspective, uh, not just the scale, the capacity and the breadth we're across Canada, including the far north, but also taking a per perspective of housing as infrastructure as opposed to traditional real estate. Um, and that's kind of the ethos that Elliston Community Builders um, is, is trying to bring into the space. I'd be interested to hear a bit more about how the model was developed, because I'll admit for me, looking at it sort of shallowly or like a first impression, this idea that instead of um, the private company investing directly their funds into the project, um, there's a different service being offered or a different way of doing it. Um, as so without the funds coming from the private sector, how does the process work? There's a few ways in which these these projects are funded, uh, but the, the general approach that we take is is similar to a P3 project. Um, What's a and, P3 and, project? Oh, I'm sorry. It's the public-private partnership model. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, it's no, no worries. Uh, but that's essentially where there, there is the, the public, uh, you know, governmental agency authority works very closely, uh, transfers a, a lot of risk into the private sector for the execution of the project. Hmm. And that risk traditionally has been uh, construction. So, you know, you get into a construction contract, it would be quite simple. And the construction risk would sit with the constructor, but design, financing, 
and all the services that come with a project, whether it's affordable housing or it would be infrastructure, hospitals or something like that, would still sit with the owner and they would have to kind of deal with that on a, on a pillared basis. When you say risk, is it stuff like the project goes over budget and then you're eating that as part of your profits? Is that kind of what or is, is that what risk means in this context? In the construction context, absolutely. Um, in the, so what that would mean is that, you know, the way that we approach projects is that we give a guaranteed maximum price. Um, under, I don't want to be too technical here, but under a design build uh, kind of re- contractual regime under a 14, CCDC 14 for those constructor people that are listening to this. Um, and anytime that we actually, you know, encroach and go over that guarantee maximum price, we take the risk of that. So we, we uh, pay our own cost overruns um, and with schedule as well. So if we do not meet uh, a schedule uh, to build a hospital or to build affordable housing, uh, we will pay what we call liquidated damages. And that's just a pre-agreed sum uh, to, for, for um, overrunning uh, a scheduled deadline, whether it's on a critical path in between the project or if it's after substantial completion, which is really when the project is ready for occupancy. Uh, so that would be the construction risk. And um, what happens in P3, um, in addition to that, is the financing risk. So mm-hmm. um, in a P3 project, we have, as Elliston Capital, the responsibility to pretty much put together our financing solution. So if that doesn't work, we're responsible for that. That's actually a contractualized piece that we bring into a project. I think the big misnomer for public-private partnerships is that the private sector owns the asset. That's absolutely not true. Uh, the asset um, ownership always sits with the government or with the uh, the entity that is procuring that project. Uh, you guys are facilitating re- it being built, but the ownership still remains public. That's correct. Gotcha. That's correct. But there is, uh, with a P3, it really shifts the risk transfer for everything um, except for the ownership onto the private sector. So how does that apply to affordable housing is that we are, our DNA, our, our company is structured to take on that wholesale uh, risk transfer, whether it's with the finance side or if it's the construction or the services. And that creates the foundation for a very innovative model because what we've seen before is a traditional real estate model where there would be an acquisition by a private developer try to you know get some affordable housing in there but really have to balance it with their pro forma to get their expected market returns and that can have the effect of uh, minimizing uh, affordable housing within a specific build and then conversely and the way that things are set up right now particularly with the cmhc financing programs is that the npos the nonprofit organizations are really tasked with the developer mandate so in addition to operating uh, according to their missions and mandates serving their populations they also have to develop uh, you know purchase if they or existing lands and develop uh, their own assets Um, and either model um, becomes strained because you either minimize the affordable housing component in a private development or you overburden or uh, you overburden essentially the development tasks of the mpos so we felt that having that wholesale kind of approach for Thalestan would really alleviate a lot of those uh, challenges that has um, presented themselves with the development of affordable housing the past couple of years. That's an interesting way to look at it, in my opinion, because kind of my understanding with affordable housing, uh, the conversation, it's always this kind of public versus private. It becomes this very conflictual relationship where there's these negotiations on the side of the government to try and get as much affordable housing into these builds as possible and then resistance on the side of the developers. And I think it can get very oversimplified as simply being, well, that's just how it is. That's that's what belongs in public and what belongs in private. But it's not really. It has to do with the incentives of the model. And there's a there can be a different way of doing this where there's better alignment between the public and the private sectors. I, I think that's exactly true. Yeah, I, I there's, there's not... 
um, a lack of interest of the federal and provincial and municipal governments to develop more affordable housing, which follows is money uh, and time spent and um, and you know interactions among those three different groups. Uh, but then there is the private sector, and the private sector uh, comes with scale capacity um, and 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 a, and a lot of interest in developing these things. But there um, there is a, a lot of conversation to be had to where you have the governmental and nonprofit mandates. Uh, leveraging the scale and capacity of the private sector, and I think there's a lot of good conversations to be had. A lot of a lot of opportunity uh, to to further leverage uh, the scale and capacity of companies like Elliston at a very very large scale. So it's not necessarily conflictual, uh, but that when you get into the details and the actual execution of the projects, that's where the the real um, problems have to be sorted out. What is it about Elliston that makes them able to work in this way? Is it just the creation of the model and it was just an innovation based in the team? Or is it something about the company structure itself that makes Elliston different from other developers to be able to offer this kind of offering for, because another word's not coming to me right now? <laughs> no, uh, yeah, there, I think there's a few things that really um, puts us in a, in a pretty good position to to have impact in this space. I think the first one is our national uh uh, spread. So we, uh, I work in Mississauga, um, and this is kind of the executive corporate resource uh, office uh, where um, the leaders of our our business units typically reside. Um, but we operate in such a way that uh, our general contractors or our area offices are spread throughout Canada. So anywhere from Vancouver to Halifax, and then Ottawa, um, who uh, th- they handle our far north projects, and everywhere in between. So all of a sudden, we have a national perspective on these things. Um, it's very different landscapes across this country, right? Very different building concerns. Absolutely. Um, but also what comes from that is a, is a large data collecting, um, uh, series of sets, uh, to, to come, um, into, into one place, which is Elliston community builders. And they really synthesize all of that stuff to come up with our offering that can be, uh, replicated across Canada. So, there, there is a lot of jurisdictional, local knowledge, lessons learned and those types of things. But that we really leverage that to put together what we hope to be a national uh, solution for, for affordable housing. Um, I think the second piece to your question is um, that full comprehensive vertical integration. So when you're looking at a project, uh, really where those things can go awry is where those different facets of each project. So where if you look at pre-development, construction, services, Nonprofit mission and statements. Just government. to slow you down here as a novice a yeah. little bit, can we talk a little yeah. bit more about what each of those stages are? Like, what yeah. what would pre-development look like? Uh, construction's pretty intuitive, but uh, this just a little breakdown for me as someone who's new to all these words. Oh, sure thing. Yeah, <laughs> pre-development just means very early concept mm. of a project. Like design. So it would even I would I would argue that it predates design. So okay. really, when we get involved. Um, it's usually prior to an RFP, prior to a procurement. It's usually sitting down with a nonprofit organization and looking at their mission, looking at their values, uh, looking at their, their business plan, what they're trying to accomplish in the next five years um, and understand what they need to build. And it could be it could impact design, for instance. So I'll give an example. Um, our 60 Caledon project in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, we're working with two uh, very large nonprofit organizations, Victoria Park Community Homes and Hamilton East Community Homes who have um, complementary but different uh, mandates. So Victoria Park is a little bit more flexible. They just want to build affordable housing for for um, those that need it. And Qantas really focuses on families. So um, it, it, how that would impact design 
for instance, is that you would look at less one bedroom units than you would look at, you know, two to three bedroom. And that's, that would obviously um, proliferate through a very large, and we're building a 300 unit um, building in Hamilton. But even before you get to design, you kind of want to bring together those two missions to those two uh, um, ambitions of the organizations to make sure that they kind of integrate. And when the opportunity comes, then we start working through design. Um, rezoning uh, is a very important piece because you want to build uh, with impact. Um, and that leads you into construction. So by the time you get to construction, you have a very, very uh, clear idea of what your ultimate user will will want at the end of the day. Because if you do it differently, you could build an obsolete building very quickly. I can imagine your legal background would be helpful with the zoning because the <laughs> zoning is such a big topic. And like I've definitely heard the argument made that the the zoning resistance to high density is a big part of why we have an affordable housing crisis in the first place. Although granted, that's not a necessarily a statement I've vetted to date, but it's an interesting perspective that is, is it the policies we have in place? Is it the limits we're putting on the kinds of developments that can exist that are at the root of this problem? I don't know if you have any a perspective mm -hmm. on that from having done this work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, planning policies across municipalities are, are, are varied. Um, they serve a multitude of interests and those interests can be conflicted. Um, and affordable housing can really uh, become a political um, hot point, um, whether it's those uh, municipal leaders that are trying to uh, uh, build affordable housing or those that are trying to resist it because it doesn't, uh, perhaps the community doesn't see it, um, it having a proper place within their postal code, for instance, right? right. NIMBYism is the word that you'd, I'd hear a lot in Vancouver, but I, it yeah. definitely extends to sort of what character you want your neighborhood to have and what in, what interests you have uh, based on what how you want where you live to look right it, it, absolutely and and that really does translate into into written policy um and into approvals and things like that so maintaining character of a neighborhood uh maintaining density models that are appropriate for the neighborhood so you don't have single detached houses and then 20 stories of a building uh next to it um, so those conflicting kind of, you know, policy achieve, uh, ambitions, whether it's to build more affordable housing, but maintain the character, that's really, those are the, those are the things that actually enter into, into zoning policy. Um, and then from a legal perspective, it is man, uh, you know, navigating the processes and through community consultation to get to the right solution and sometimes facing headwinds along the way. Definitely. And I think about where I live in Moncton, which is one of the fastest growing in cities in Canada right now. And we're having to grapple with this huge influx of people that are coming in and continuing to come in and the current levels of density and zoning that we had based on an idea of what the city was that might be changing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, I guess just kind of moving on. Um, so construction will be the next phase and then what comes after construction? Sure. Yeah. Construction obviously is the core of our business. So um by using our model, by the time we actually put shovel into the ground, the price is secure, uh, financing is in place, the concept is clear, uh, and and we build, uh, and we adhere to a very tight schedule. Uh, what's different um, about affordable housing versus traditional real estate is that, as you can see in the Rapid Housing Initiative, the three rounds that have been uh, put forward by CMHC, for instance, um, you're under very prescribed uh, timelines in terms of schedule. Um, as well as building requirements, so you have to make um, you have to satisfy the CMHC uh, requirements of of code, uh, for instance. 
So that construction program uh, could be quite a robust um, undertaking. Uh, so you do want a very, very good constructor to achieve and to execute uh, on that. So our, our builds typically take between, well, with RHI, it was 12 months. We were able to do that in London. Uh, or anywhere between one to five years, depending on the size and complexity um, of construction. Definitely. And so and I've heard it said that you guys are cradle to grave. Um, what kind of stuff is grave for a building, right? Like what kind of service would that even mean? Sure. I mean, I, I think it might, I don't know how long you're going to hear that. Um, yeah, fair enough. That, that slogan for, I, I prefer, <laughs> I, I prefer vertically integrated because it speaks more to the different disciplines and stages of a project. But, uh, but to answer your question, when we develop a project, so a lot of, private developers will look at a project this way. They'll say, you know, here's a piece of land. Uh, we're going to buy this. We're going to build it. And we're going to stabilize it for two years after um, construction. Mm -hmm. Once the building's full, that's that's what a private developer does. And then they'll move on to the next thing, which is fine. And that's that's what the uh, that business activity requires. If you take an infrastructure perspective, the way you would look at a hospital, for instance, we call it life cycle. So, you know, from pre-development, which is early concept that we just talked about, um, your life cycle would start there. Um, it, it would at least be in contemplated. Their life cycle would start with occupation of the building, but really to make a sustainable asset, whether it's environmentally sustainable or socially sustainable, and just to keep it um, uh, fresh for the for the livelihood of those that live there, you have to look at the operational period as well. So you have to look at that 40 to 50 year period of a hospital or the 40, 50 year um, affordability obligations that are part of an affordable housing project. And make sure that that actually that pro forma, those operational efficiencies that are established our day one are sustainable, do persist throughout the life of the asset. So perhaps when we look at grave, it doesn't necessarily mean grave to the extent that we're actually going to, you know, uncommission or decommission an affordable housing project, but it's to reflect that long-term sustainability of the model uh, that that is intended with that with that development. Like the word that's coming to mind for me is maintenance, like making sure that the building stays livable, which is such a concern with so much affordable housing, especially in, in big city centers where there's technically housing, but they're not livable buildings, right? hundred percent. And that's that's the one of the skill sets I think that LS Don brings in with the infrastructure perspective, because when we're putting our design together, we may, uh, you know, if our life cycle says that a boiler has to be replaced uh, a little bit more than a private developer would have estimated, we build that into our design. Uh, when we look at geothermal versus other types of um, uh, um, heating and cooling systems, it might require a little bit more upfront capital, but if you compare it to the operational efficiencies that you achieve over over the long term um, and the replacements required, um, that becomes starts to make a lot more sense. Definitely. So that, yeah, so that that that's there, and we do develop life cycle schedules. So, you know, replacement, uh, refurbishment and O&M type things um, so that the our end client can actually take that and know how to operate the building over a long term. Such an important thing to include, especially like the way things are right now, just uh, for new buildings. Just uh, anyways, I love that. Um, so you mentioned the, the CMHC, that's the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation, yes? Yes. Um, so I read that they, uh, they did a report and they estimated that Canada needs 3.5 million housing units to achieve affordability by 2030. Does, does that, does that jive with you? Does that number kind of make sense? I think that number made sense. I think that number came out in June, 2022. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there's a little bit of uh crystal balling there because you, you would have to also assume what your 
how well they'll do with uh, RHA round three and all the other programs that will follow. But I, I think it, it would be in that magnitude. Um, there was a deficit number that I was trying to dig up uh, that, that fed into that number, but I don't think that deficit, the deficit is, number is like the units that are no longer yeah. functional for a variety of, for, for the hundred million reasons that that could be happening. It, it, that's exactly it. So I, it, that's hard to predict. It's hard to, you know, we could say that right now um, to get to what we need, there's a $3.5 million, uh, you know, need to, to, to build these things. But what is also what's hard to predict is what units are actually going to go obsolete. Mm. Especially because sometimes I think there's hesitancy on the on part of municipalities to get those hard deficit numbers because there have definitely been times where you have to condemn a building and there's nowhere for anyone to go. So as a municipality, you're asking yourself, was it were we better condemning the building and forcing these people into home? Like it's kind of a no win situation. So I find sometimes the political will to get good deficit numbers isn't there in in one woman's opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also, too, is that uh, those deficit numbers, we you go into this, you know, housing is a continuum. You have mm. emergency homelessness and that requires shelters. And then if you if you if you look at the continuum, you get into attainable housing and then into market. But there's a lot of kind of um, substratum within that. And then you look at transitional housing. So if you if you are ultimately trying to build a community that is going to be, say, house, uh, you know, 500 more families. Uh, but you have to displace 100 to do that. That transitional housing is a strategy that is still being very highly challenged um, across Canada. So modular solutions sometimes help in that regard. Um, but it's tough to look at the long-term sustainability of transitional housing because it's interim. It's an interim solution. So you can't really, that's a really hard calculus uh, to, to project. Definitely. So 3.5 million-ish, we'll say, for, for yeah. how many buildings? How many, um, uh, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's a lot. Yeah, um, no, yeah. But um, so, you know, I, I've, I've heard you say in previous interviews that, that Elliston wants to take that on. Was that a good understanding? Is that does Elliston feel like we can, we can get that done? Yeah, I think we can make a significant impact. I think the models to date, um, they don't... Um, optimize the opportunity for us to impact as much as as I think that we could. So there's like there's barriers in your way kind of. Yeah, and I I, I also like I've said this before like the the challenge for Ellis, a company like Elliston is that there's there's typically not a project that's too big. Um what can happen though is that a, there could be a lot of projects that are too small. So um, anyone in any sort of kind of discipline in this business, like whether it's a consultant or constructor or anything, they'll say, you know, a 20 unit build is just as much work as putting together a two to 300 unit build. Um, and, and I, and I would agree with that. Um, what the benefit that we have is a constructor arm and a, and a pretty good one. Uh, but they, they need in order to sustain the, the business model, they need to have large builds. They have to have large scale. So if you if you take that um, and apply it to um, you know the deficit or the 3.5 million homes in this instance, that's that's a higher ambition actually works better for a for for our type of initiative than it worked for a smaller constructor, a local constructor. But of course, there are a lot of small communities across Canada that still need affordable housing. You know, like I think about in New Brunswick, we've got tons of small communities that are still struggling with housing, but even like up north in places like, like the Northwest Territories and Nunavut housing is a concern there as well. hundred um, percent. I'll speak to the north at a separate um, point here, but, um, but yes. So the ideas that are being kind of floated around at the moment are um, 
you know, perhaps a 10 unit build in, uh, in Moncton, for instance, might not make sense for an Eliston. But if we had the type of um, platform to aggregate, uh, perhaps across multi-sites to, um, to take that on as one project, to have uh, multi-governmental support for, say, we aggregate uh, 500 to 1,000 units on, on multi-sites and have a couple of municipalities really say, you know what, that's a, actually a, a, an integrated solution that we can that we can support. I think that's where we start looking at the scale where we can start making an impact. Um, and that's not unseen in other sectors. If you look at Ontario Highway Services Centers, uh, you know, that's a multi-site al along the 400 series highways where we've built um, you know, the, ga the gas stations and the food um, uh, facilities and things like that. Canadian border crossings is another example that's done through a P3, OPP stations and so forth. I'll admit that an aggregate at first blush for someone who's outside of this field seems counterintuitive to me because it's instead, you know, it'd be way simpler than doing one 20 unit building. Let's do 50 20 unit buildings. <laughs> like, how is that simpler? <laughs> Or how is that more doable? Maybe is a better simpler is the wrong word, but how is that how is that a better fit for what Ellis Don does? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I I think I'll I'll start with the design and construction. So um, a lot of residential buildings, not just affordable housing, uh, residential generally speaking, uh, you know, survive on their on this on similar systems. So when you develop a design. Uh, Ellis Don, at least, we start with systems. We look at mechanical and engineering structuring, um, any any sort of HVAC and, and all those different types of things. And if you could look at a program uh, that is prescribed by, for example, CMHC, uh, they really push on higher sustainability levels. So uh, you start working within a, a specific parameter, net zero carbon, for instance. So if you could apply that into an aggregate unit um, or a sort of aggregate number of units and say, these are your systems that you're going to work and then start applying to site, uh, your site becomes this bespoke piece, but it's it's kind of um, the next step, the next stage that can expedite an aggregate of units into development. So and then like, from the so like each individual site is specialized, but because you're working with multiple sites together, um, applying kind of some of the same parameters, that's what makes it yeah. scalable. If I'm yeah, understanding that's, you, that's correct. And I think that that notion was really seen in Rapid Housing Initiative One. Um, where modular was looked at as the exclusive kind of building solution on that. Because if you think about modular, it is it is one system that's built within a, a factory, essentially, or a manufacturing facility um, with, with the same type of systems that could be replicated at a fast pace and then brought to site. And the site is the piece that has a bespoke and has to have a kind of a nuanced approach to it. Mm -hmm. Modular buildings seem to be getting more and more common in the real estate world as well. Like I think about the number of times where you can get like a prefabricated house and then just specialize certain elements of it to you. It's kind of that, but bigger. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's at the, where modular really hits the nail on the head where it starts with the systems. It says this is your kind of the DNA of, of your place, but it doesn't it doesn't actually become too prohibitive on tailoring it, nuancing it make it your own it's like a 2020s do... update on the sears housing kits <laughs> <laughs> yes yes a little more complicated yeah but no i agree it's the same it's the same kind of it hits the same kind of creative spot in your brain for sure for sure well and it, it's so and is that where because elliston developed something called an affordable housing base is that kind of what this is is that the modulable oh, that's not the right word modularable modulated modulatable Let's go with modulatable. I, um, I like that. Yeah, I'm ready to add. 
Um, well, it, is that sort of what the affordable housing base is? It's that it's that set kind of housing kit that can be adjusted to add to the bespoke or the 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 specific project. Yes. Yeah. In essence, that's exactly what it is. Um, in any affordable housing project, what you're going to be driven by the same parameters, which is um, how is it funded? Uh, so you start with CMHC and you look at their co-investment or RCFI requirements. Uh, those are naturally applied. Uh, you have to meet 2017 NECB building code. Um, and you have to, and the way that you actually get better funding is to have higher levels of environmental efficiency and accessibility. So what we decided to do with our research and development is to have a base design its systems as a default meet those base requirements. And that's why we call it base. So that there's no question as to whether it's going to achieve the um, default funding. Um, and then the, the, our owner client will have the ability to move the design from there. So it really expedites the, the, the process, the design process, but it also uh, creates certainty for the build uh, so that we can focus on the nuanced port or, uh, details of it and, and the site. Gotcha. Um, so there's, there was concern about it being accessible. There's concern about designing it to be like environmental. What is the concerns or the elements that went into this housing base that makes it affordable? Is it materials? Is it, is it streamlining the construction? Is it, is it different than that? Like, what is it about this housing base that is affordable? Right. Um, so the first thing that I'll say is that it, it, it attracts public financing. Um, that, that is a, a, a absolute requisite because in order to find, in order to develop affordable housing, you do need public CMHC, FCM, uh, and different pots of, uh, funding that will go into this. And that typically tends to be very favorable, uh, lending, uh, or grant programs mm. so that it doesn't necessarily lend to a, a lower construction price, but it certainly does, uh, it can have the impact on an owner's equity requirement or capital requirement that they put into the project if they can achieve that funding. So it achieves that. Okay. So a lot of it's even just how it's financed. Yeah. It's a huge, huge um, consideration when you're developing affordable housing or all, otherwise you're just developing housing. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, affordable housing necessarily implies that you're having some government support um, in, in getting it developed. Um, the second piece is, is I, I know we tend to go to modular thinking it's cheaper and faster, but that's not always the case. So having a base design creates the optionality of doing traditional or modular, uh, but that's a pro forma exercise. Pro forma, what does that mean? Pro forma means that when we put together the budget of a project, uh, we constantly update it um, against the financing programs and the construction costs. And you put that total construction budget within the project cost, that's your pro forma. Okay, so pro forma means you've updated your assumptions. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you have, although you have a very, not a rigid base design, but a very established base design, the, you then start taking the moving parts to ensure that it becomes economically efficient to build. Um, and then the third piece would be the more you would actually get to a solution that works for one site or for one portion of a site, the more you can wholesale materials and the more you can replicate uh, and build on efficiency. So it becomes economies of scale after that. And that's where we really hope to get. We're not there yet, to be honest, because that's where the aggregate idea, the portfolio comes together, where we can start putting together, you know, different portions of units and, and, and grow from there. Definitely. Especially because having the, the housing design is, is, is great. But when you're talking about very remote communities, 
sometimes just getting all the equipment there and all the different logistics that can go into that build can can drive it up to back to that unaffordable place, I'm guessing. That's exactly right. So um, we do a lot of work in the far north. Um, we do a lot of advisory work uh, and, and construction as well. Huge portion of it is getting materials onto sea lifts or onto, onto rail. And you're very limited on when you can actually do that. So that's a cost in, uh, consideration in itself. I can only uh, imagine the way that the cost of oil and gas and has, has put that transport cost through the roof. Although probably like all the supply chain stuff I can imagine was diff- made building affordable housing more challenging. Oh, it's, it's I mean, through, through COVID, uh, at, during the most challenging times, you would have, uh, you know, our, for example, our modular systems at the time were volumetric, which means uh, the full box was, you know, fully developed by the time that it would end up on the site, but it was largely steel and steel went through this crazy cycle um, that we couldn't ensure any cost consistency. Um, and then for the transportation, there's also insurance, um, you know, considerations and, and, and with the supply chain in such a flux in the way it's been in the last four or five years, um, it's really hard to come to cost consistency. And with our model where we guarantee it, uh, that becomes even more challenging because there are, quite frankly, you have to hedge um, your costing to address those, right? So right. yeah, it's, it's been crazy. Because you, you, you guys say, if, you go, if we go above the ceiling, the risk is ours. So yeah. that, that's, that becomes very impactful for, for the Elliston business is if where the ceiling should be is unpredictable. <laughs> It, it certainly is. And it's, and there's no precedent. Like, I mean, if you were to look at your last pandemic a hundred years ago, like there's not a lot of things you can grab onto to make sense of it. So yes, it's been a very, very challenging uh, past few years in, no. on the construction pricing. This might sound very naive, but the insurance piece did surprise me a little bit because part of me sort of assumed that something publicly funded would have access to some kind of public insurance or there would be some sort of support there. But is it not as the insurance you have to get to transport all the goods? That's all private sector as well? Uh, the, yeah, for the construction, we could have um, prescribed insurance coverages. So in a P3 project, and I, I, I'm going to use an acronym and I can't explain what the acronym is, but it's IOSIP. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, 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 yeah, let's look that yeah. guy up. Yeah, we'll have a bunch of new uh, terms by the end of this. Amazing, uh, we, we can create like what's the word? Uh, we'll create an appendix. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I also <laughs> baby name. Nope, that's not what we want. <laughs> no, oh, you're right. Uh, well, yeah. Okay, it'll just have to be a mystery acronym. Sorry, audience. <laughs> that's, a, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but but no, we 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 uh, that that's part. What I was saying earlier is that that financing piece, that that kind of the P three perspective, is that it does get transferred to the private sector, um, in, in almost everywhere, including insurance. So we 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 build efficiencies that way, but we we uh, we we take that. No, absolutely. Um, hmm, let's see here. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm out of the questions I'd kind of thought of ahead of time, but I'd love to he- hear a bit more about you, because I know you have that legal background. How does that impact your perspective on your work at Ellis Dawn? Because like, I'll admit, lawyer and then construction are not two categories that kind of cross over a lot in, in my head. Yeah, I, well, maybe close, closer than, than you might um, expect. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why. So my background in law is actually in infrastructure. Um, so I practiced at a, when I started practicing, I was in a downtown firm and I was in the P3 space and I was lenders counsel for most of our, our work. Um, and, a, and a couple of times I was project counsel. So in doing so, uh, you become very um, astute 
uh, to the different facets of the project because representing lenders and uh, with the lenders that demand the certainty that you would see in infrastructure projects, you really have to get into the details of the performance of your constructor, the performance of your service providers, uh, performance of consultants and, uh, and all those different types of things. So the one thing I loved about um, practicing in that in that space is that it was very tangible. I mean, you could work on something and then you could see, you could drive somewhere and see it built. And um, that really saved me from the drudgery for, of, of being a practicing lawyer. Um, <laughs> well, it can but, be very abstract sometimes, right? It, it, it really can be. I mean, and, and to tell you the truth, there's been times when I've been working on, when I was practicing, I working on a project and I would lose track. I'm like, what are we actually building here? Like, because the documents, <laughs> you know, it didn't really matter because you were looking at a financing concept, for instance, right? So No, 100%. But is this a hospital? Is this a school? <laughs> what, yeah. like, what, are, what, is, what is this going to be? What is its life going to be? Because like we talked a yeah. little bit about like zoning and where I could see that being useful. But that's, that's true. You have all these codes and, and basically laws that go into... Um, shaping and limiting or guiding how the building should be constructed. Do you find that there's, that that's just true? uh, Most buildings tend to share the same set of codes or is there coding for affordable housing that's unique or different to regular real estate? So yeah, that, that's a great question. So you have, you you typically have your municipal and provincial and and federal, uh, you know, code, (coughs) excuse me, um, code (coughs) regimes. I'm just going to get some water here. Just excuse me. Um, that will impact any building uh, that whether it's residential, commercial, industrial. Um, so you have those to start with. But with um, with the financing programs and the governmental support that you have with those come additional requirements in a lot of cases. Um, so part, I, I, I've referenced CMHC a couple of times. So their co-investment uh, program requires that 2007. You have to, I think you have to exceed 25 percent of what's prescribed under 2017 NECB um, energy requirements. And then they'll put on different things like accessibility uh, requirements. So our base design is universal design. So those become very either either born from law or they're born from policy um, and financing requirements, right? So uh, that's why it's really, um, it's a really interesting space to be in because you do have to take a lot of different disciplines concurrently. You have to take engineering, constructability and then the legal commercial and hopefully you have all those folks at the same table because you can have one discipline that does it's it's right in their wheelhouse but if they come up with the best engineering solution that doesn't meet a certain threshold under a cmhc financing program it doesn't matter because it won't get funded and therefore it won't get built it makes it very easy to imagine a set of circumstances where you have a table missing a key expertise and you make a plan with a blind spot or a gap and then all of a sudden you're building and it's like oh no exactly but i'll tell you the most important thing this is our ethos this is our primary concept is the most important people to have at that table are the nonprofit organizations or the indigenous groups or the municipalities who will take on that asset uh, for a long-term period, who are responsible to their their populations, to their communities, uh, who will actually live there. And we've seen way too many times examples where you can build the best building for no one um, and, and it doesn't serve anyone, even if it's the greenest or if it's the cheapest or if it's the biggest or it's whatever it is. That's having having the NPO or the Indigenous group sit with us and, and provide their... Um, input from day one is just that's how we that's how we operate that totally makes sense to me it's sort of like taking a step back it's like a a, a bigger scale on something i talked about with a previous guest don whedon from the greater uh, moncton homelessness steering committee where she talked about moncton actually has a very low eviction rate 
for homeless folks. I think we're hovering around 3%. And a lot of that that low eviction rate is because of the time taken to find a good fit of housing for the individual, right? Um, whereas in a lot of systems and systems that I previously worked, it was a, ho- a housing came up and if you said no to it, well, you're off the list. Like too bad, you're at the bottom. Like, it's, sorry, like there's lots of people on the list. You had your chance, too bad. Um, which uh, heartbreaking, but that's just such a reality in a lot of the nonprofit sectors. But in Moncton, it's sort of like, if you don't feel like housing is a good fit for you, you can say, you know what? No, this I, I want my cat or, or something like it. Like whatever, you know, we all have things we want out of our homes, right? And um, then that doesn't, there's not a punishment for that. There's not a, um, you can stay, you can keep your position on the list and then the housing will go to someone for whom it's a good fit. So it's like, well, take a step back. Communities tend to have needs. Communities tend to have a direction that they need their housing to go. And if it's not built with that in mind, it's going to be very hard to find someone who's a good fit to live there. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, and, and understandably when you have a company like Ellis Dawn, uh, looking at this space, particularly when we come and say we have a base design, I think a lot of people's minds go, oh, well, you're just going to bring this thing in that doesn't fit the community. But that's that's actually, I, and I, I know that's intuitive, but it, the way that we see it is that we come with, a, with that in our toolkit so we can get to those discussions immediately so we can have what, what exactly do you want to have built for your community? How does it work with the rest of the um, you know, assets that are the interconnectivity that we try to achieve? And I think that, that really is, a, is a, an accelerator uh, with that type of perspective. Right. It's a, to, to accelerate, not to limit, I guess, is sort of maybe the, yeah. the, the idea with it. Yeah. Very nice. Yes. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of explain this to me and to, to everyone and to give us a sense that there's a different way of doing things other than just private versus public. There's a kind of a new framework we can put on this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was exciting to, to speak to. Awesome. Thanks again. Well and Fair is brought to you by La Station Workspace, working in partnership with O Strategies. La Station is a co-working space that brings people together in Moncton, New Brunswick for community and collaboration. Well and Fair is hosted by me, Anna Larad, and produced by Elevate Studios.